So my name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here, if I've not met you. And we are at Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And for thousands of years, there's been a tradition in the church between Christians that they would greet each other. And they would say, he is risen. And the other person would respond with, he is risen indeed. So I'm going to say that. He is risen. He is risen Amen. So we have this... We have our Kids Life program that's over in the hall right now, and they follow the series that we follow here in Big Church, and they're learning about Jesus, about his death, and about his resurrection. And a couple of years ago, when I was a pastor at Rabina, at our campus there, at our church there, we had our Kids Life program running, and there were these two boys on Easter Friday watching a cartoon about Jesus being crucified. Now, one of these boys was visibly upset visibly upset that they were going to crucify the Son of God, the one who loved the world, the one who came to save us, and they were killing him, and he died on the cross. But his mate leant over and put his arm around him and said, he's dead now, but he'll be back. I love the way this young boy comforts his friend. It's a horrible thing that happened to Jesus, right? Like, he died on the cross, but it's not the last thing that happens in the story. Clearly, this other child had been to an Easter service before and he knew about the resurrection and also the, the hope that accompanies that resurrection, that reality. But what we need to be careful of is because we know the end of the story, we sometimes miss out on the significance of today, the significance of the resurrection, because we know the end. So before we get into it, I would love to pray. Would you please join me? Heavenly Father, as we come before you, Lord, would you open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your word? Lord, I thank you so much that on Friday you died for us. But then on Sunday we see the miracle of the resurrection. That not only did you die for us, but that sacrifice was accepted and death was not the final word. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would help me preach your word in truth and in love. Lord, that they wouldn't look to me, but they would only look to you, the one who brings life and life in all its fullness. Amen. Have you ever woken up to a bad day? Like you've gone to sleep the night before and the reality you've gone to sleep with, you're hoping is going to disappear by the time you get up. But you get up in the morning and those test results from the, from the doctor, they still loom over you. Or you get up in the morning and that dreaded meeting you've got to go to today is still in your calendar. Or you've woken up and there's that grief from that emotional hurt that you would hope would feel better in the morning. Or that depression or the anxiety or the fear you went to bed with, it's still the same now you've woken up. If that's you today, Easter Sunday is good news for your soul because I'm sure that's exactly how Mary and the disciples felt waking up on the third day after Jesus' death. They're waking up to the reality that their plans had been disrupted, that their hopes had been dashed, that their dreams had been squashed, that this Messiah who was to come was going to destroy the powers of evil and set up a new kingdom. But on Friday, he's murdered. And they wake up on Sunday still with this reality that he's dead. Sunday morning comes around and Mary wakes up. And goes to the garden tomb, as we read in John chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. You know, we jump ahead 
And we rejoice because we know what's coming, right? But for Mary and the disciples, this still wasn't good news. You know, we have the theme of the garden, as you can see up here on stage for this Easter. And we need to pause for a moment because what started in the Garden of Eden, which was sin and death when humanity fell, it reached this painful climax in the Garden of Gethsemane, where just before Jesus is about to be arrested and crucified, all the weight of the sin of the world was put on Jesus. And that's what we preached about on Friday. That on Jesus, that was laid and he looks to the cross and he goes, not my will, Lord, but your will be done and chooses to go to the cross for you and me. But now this story continues. It goes from the Garden of Gethsemane to the Garden Tomb. And verse 11 says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. So adding hurt to injury, Mary is standing there and she is in one who is responding in grief. Why is she crying? She's crying because this was the final nail in her grief. They had taken her Lord's life and now they'd taken his body. These tears are tears of overwhelming grief. And just before she thought it couldn't have got any worse than Friday, when her Lord was murdered, she seems, it looks like to her right now, with the empty tomb, it has. You see, the hope of the disciples was that Christ was the divine intervention into the human condition, that Jesus was going to restore Israel and humanity back into relationship with God, but then Jesus is crucified and buried in a tomb. And yet here stands Mary looking at an empty tomb and she finds the body is gone. We can't rush too fast past this moment and the, the pain she must be feeling inside. And we all know what that feels like, right? Like fresh salt rubbed into an open wound where we ourselves have been in situations where we think life can't possibly get any worse and then all of a sudden it does where we're going through pain and suffering or sickness, and then, then something else is just put on top in that time, and we're like, what? How can this be? I don't know if I can take any more of this. And then you're standing at the tomb of your circumstance, staring at what seems to be no hope, just like Mary. But this is not how the story ends. Verse 11 says, As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. I love how in this moment, Mary bypasses the fact that there's actually two angels sitting in the tomb. Like there's two angels there and it like, seems normal to her. She is grieving so much from the death of her Lord, but also the body missing, that she doesn't even recognize that there's two angels there. She doesn't even see that that's a problem. And she's like, where have they taken him? She is so overcome by grief. And Mary responds to the angels with this statement, where have they taken my Lord? She doesn't even think there could be a different option. She doesn't even think that Jesus might be alive. But why do the angels question her and say, Woman, why are you crying? Because to the angels, this is a good thing that his body is not there. Because they know the story of redemption. They know the story of salvation, that Jesus was going to die and rise again to life. So the angels are like, why are you crying? This is great. John Maline, he actually says, For heaven, nothing is more incongruous than tears at the empty tomb of Jesus. 
What he's saying here is nothing more confusing to heaven than someone standing at the open tomb with nobody there crying. Because we should be rejoicing, right? Because Jesus rose from the dead. And in this moment, she actually senses someone behind her and she turns around and sees a man. And in verse 14, it says, And this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking she was the gardener, thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. This is a quite a remarkable statement. This is Mary, like Jesus probably would have been the size of me. She is so full of love and grief for her Lord. She's like, you tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him myself. Like I will try and pick him up and bring him back to where he should be. Where is he? Tell me. And I love how Jesus is depicted as a garden here. I don't think that's accidental in the scriptures. Because Jesus came to restore a path back to the garden in Eden where it was lost in Genesis. When we, we sinned in that perfect garden, Jesus was coming back to restore us to that. That man would now be able to walk with God again in the cool of the day. The garden has returned to re- restore the beauty of creation. Has come back to graft us back into the source of life to this intimate relationship with God. But then Jesus says to her, Mary. Jesus calls out her name. He calls out her name and this signifies relationship. This signifies love. This signifies intimacy between the two of them. And it's in that moment when he calls out her name, she recognizes that it's her Lord. And she turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni. Could you imagine what that's like? That moment she recognizes that's the risen Jesus Christ. And Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go and said to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that Jesus had said these things to her. This beauty here is that Mary is the first human witness of the resurrected Jesus. And she runs to tell others these five simple words, I have seen the Lord. It's the first proclamation of the gospel. But who cares? So what? Why does this matter? Because Jesus had seen, uh, Mary had seen Jesus. She didn't say, oh, I've seen his dead body or I found where his dead body is. She says, I have seen that which was meant to be dead but is now alive. Mary has seen the risen Lord, and because she's seen the risen Lord, it changes three things. The first thing is Jesus' resurrection changes world history. Second, Jesus' resurrection changes our personal reality. And three, Jesus' resurrection changes our universal trajectory. And we're going to explore these three things now. So Jesus' resurrection changes world history. It's not enough for us to just assume that the resurrection is a nice story in Christianity that we should celebrate just once a year. I believe the most important question you can ask yourself in this life is, who is Jesus and did he raise from the dead? If you answer that he's nobody and no, he didn't, then that's fine. Nothing changes. Go on living your life as it is. But don't just answer no out of convenience. Don't just answer no because you want to keep being the Lord of your own life and keep sinning. Because there is too much historical proof to the contrary 
that Jesus did in fact raise again, proof that something happened in that tomb, that death didn't have the last say over him, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, that death has lost its power. You see, Easter, you can't celebrate Easter nominally. There's no middle ground on the resurrection of Jesus. Sean McDowell says, while many people may reject the historical resurrection of Jesus, it's not the type of claim that can be true for you, but not true for me. The tomb was either empty on the third day or it was occupied. There's no middle ground. And before anyone can grasp the transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus, he or she must realise that it is a matter of objective fact, not of personal preference. Now, I don't know why you've joined us today. You may have joined us because you believe in the resurrection. You may have joined us because you've been invited by family and friends. But there's nothing casual or easy about Easter. Either this happened and we can join Mary in her joy, crying out, the Lord is risen, or it didn't happen and we join her in weeping and in grief. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, the garden is lost, sin and death is not defeated and our hope in eternal life is gone. But what if what Jesus said is the truth? Did you know that the resurrection was not made up by the disciples, but it was declared by Jesus himself? He taught it actually many times in the Gospels, and this is one of them in Matthew 16. It's recorded that from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hand of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life again. Jesus clearly told his disciples multiple times that this is what he has to do. This is the plan of salvation. But for them, they just didn't get it. Like, think about it, right? You're walking around with Jesus and he's saying, hey, I'm going to go die and I'm going to raise again. And you're like, what is he talking about? Like, is, what's he talking about? Is he talking something about spiritually, like not physically? Like, what's going on there? They had no idea what he was actually saying. And none of them... Were, had their courage enough to actually ask him to explain it. Pastor Timothy Keller answers this idea that you can't believe in Easter without taking Jesus' claim and the resurrection seriously. You see, people don't believe in the resurrection because that would then have to mean that they would have to follow Jesus' teaching and the Bible and they're offended by Christianity. They're offended by the Bible. So he asks this person a question. He says, let me ask you a question. Are you saying that because there are parts of the Bible that you don't like, that Jesus Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead? And they say, well, well, no, I'm guessing I'm not saying that. He said, well, every part of the Bible is important, but would you please put the ethical teaching aside for a minute? And here's the main point. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you're going to have to deal with everything in the Bible. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't know why you're vexing yourself over the Bible. It's just a, a fairy tale book. But the fact of the matter is, Paul was one of the most offended um, was more offended by Christianity than you. He was killing Christians and we don't advise that. But when he realized Jesus had been raised, it didn't matter what offended him anymore. It didn't matter because it was true. And when we have to keep that in mind, the resurrection is a paradigm-shattering historical event. What is Timothy Keller talking about here with the Apostle Paul? Well, the Apostle Paul's name used to be Saul. And he was a Jew in the book of Acts right at the beginning. And he was persecuting the church. He was going around and throwing Christians in jail and they were being murdered. He was so against Christianity, but then all of a sudden he has this encounter with the risen Jesus Christ. And seeing Jesus Christ risen 
changes his whole outlook, his whole outlook on life. And he goes, okay, if this is real and I've seen the risen Christ, then he becomes the Apostle Paul and becomes one of the greatest preachers and teachers in the early church. We have many of his letters. I think it's about nearly a half of the New Testament is written by Paul because the resurrection changed everything. So how do we know that the resurrection happened? Well, we can't go into all the evidence today, but quickly. Firstly, that the, there was a woman that was the first witness to the resurrection. And you might go, so what? Well, in the first century, women were not used to testify in court. They had absolutely no voice. You couldn't, be a test, like you couldn't testify as a witness in court as a woman. They didn't believe their testimony. And so we see here, written in the Gospels, that they testify that the first person to see the resurrected Christ, the first person to preach the Gospel that he has risen, is a woman. Historians that are Christian and non-Christian say there's no reason why you would put that in there. It doesn't help their case at all. The only reason you would put it there is if it was actually fact. That if it actually happened. And they all agree on that. And there was more than 500 people that attested to seeing the risen and resurrected Christ who stood to gain nothing from claiming that he rose from the dead. In fact, most of them were actually killed for their faith. And all they had to do was deny that he rose again, but they didn't because they saw him and it was fact and they couldn't deny the fact that they'd seen the risen Christ. And we know that throughout history, there is different writings, not only from Christians, but from non-Christians that talk about Josephus as one. He was a Jewish historian writing for the Romans. He said there was a man named Jesus. He did amazing miracles and he was crucified and he was, a, was reported to have rose, risen from the dead. And so we have historical evidence that this actually happened. And you might say to me, well, Scott, they were probably hallucinating. 500 people. 500 people hallucinating. Dr. Gary, a licensed clinical psychologist, writes, I've surveyed the professional literature, peer-reviewed journal articles and books written by psychologists, psychiatrists and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades and have yet to find a single documented case of group hallucination. Not one. Yet we have over 500 people, including the disciples, that claim to have seen the risen Christ. They can't all be hallucinating the same thing. Not, that's just impossible. And lastly, there's no body. Like you can go to Augustine's Molosseum in Rome and here's a picture of the tomb. This is the tomb of the great Caesar Augustus who was the god emperor of the time Jesus was born. So this is a person who lived right when Jesus was alive. And he was considered to be a god by the Roman Empire. And still his tomb stands till this day. You can go and visit where his body is buried. You can go to Rome and visit where Peter the Apostle, his body is buried. But you can't go and visit Jesus' body. It's not there. It's gone. Why? Because he rose again. He rose again in bodily form. He was resurrected. So why is all this evidence important? Because until you actually accept the fact that Jesus resurrected from the dead as a matter of historical reality, then you'll never know the hope it offers to you personally. The Apostle Paul knew this. He writes in the church in Corinth. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, I am wasting my time right now. I've dedicated my life to nothing. And your faith is useless if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. 
Why does Paul say this? Because the resurrection is not something that only changes world history. It's a reality that changes our personal reality as well. And Jesus' resurrection changes personal reality. Atheist writer and thinker Stephen Hawking claimed that Christianity is merely a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. You know, I can sympathise with some of what Stephen Hawkins is saying here. I do believe Christianity because I'm afraid of the dark. But I'm not afraid of the night. I'm afraid of the darkness in my heart. When you recognise the depth of human darkness and sin, the hopeless state, not just of our world but our own soul before Christ, you begin to question, is there anything that can save me from this darkness? Is there anything that can save me from the sin that dwells in me that I find first in my heart and I see in the rest of the world? Romans 3.23 says, This is why the, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. All of us sitting here. You've sinned, I've sinned, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is why the cross means nothing without the tomb and the tomb means nothing without the cross. Because on Friday when I preached, we learned about the human predicament that we've all sinned, we've all rebelled, just like in Genesis 3 when we fell into sin. We've all rebelled and chosen our own pathway to sin. But that leads to death. So what can save us from this trajectory of sin and death? It's only Jesus. You see, the resurrection is not a fairy tale for people afraid of their own darkness, but rather a historical fact for people who have realized there is no other option to the darkness and sin of the human heart than divine intervention. Fleming Rutledge says, From beginning to end, the Holy Scriptures testify that the predicament of fallen humanity is so serious, so grave, so irredeemable from within that nothing short of divine intervention can rectify it. You see, the perfect garden was lost in Genesis because man wanted to live his own life. And the rest of the Old Testament is proof that we can't fix that, that we can't find our way back to that perfect garden. So God himself, he comes down, he steps down into our situation, he dies on the cross for you and me. And if Jesus only died on the cross on Friday, and that's where the story ended, what hope is in that? Jesus then is nothing but a martyr, or a comforting idea that God cares, because death still wins, because he's still dead. But the empty tomb, Jesus' resurrection, tells us not only that Jesus went to take the punishment for sin on the cross for you and me and pay that death penalty, but the divine plan of salvation worked. That death didn't win. That sin did not win. That sin was paid, the payment was accepted, and we live in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. You know, it's like this. You know when you go to the shop and you're paying for something and you tap your card, and so you pay for it, and then it says sending? And you're sitting there, there's that awkward moment where you're thinking, oh, gosh, I hope I've got enough funds. Like, this is really expensive. There's a lot of people behind me. This is going to be really embarrassing if it comes back declined. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and then payment accepted. You're like, oh, great, the payment is accepted. This is what we see in the cross of Jesus Christ. That on that cross, he makes the payment for sin for you and me, the entirety of the human race. And in those days where he's in the tomb, it's sending. And everyone is waiting in anticipation. Does that mean that we are forgiven of our sin? Has the check cleared? Is the payment going to be accepted? And the empty tomb is the promise that the, the payment has been accepted by God the Father. That death did not win. That sin did not win. That when Jesus rose again on the third day, he defeated sin and death for you and for me. Praise God for that. 
Now there's nothing more owing to God for those who have accepted Jesus Lord as their saviour. That sin debt has been paid and the payment has cleared. And this is what we celebrate in baptism and we will be celebrating after this service. It celebrates dying to sin and coming to new life in Jesus Christ. We've been washed of our sin and we are sons and daughters of the Most High God now. 1 Corinthians 15 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We only have this hope in Jesus. You can. You can be given and freely receive eternal life. There is a light that breaks through the darkness of sin. And that's Jesus. But this is just not historical or personal. It also has universal ramifications as well. We live in a world tainted by death, right? A world of sin and pain and suffering. You know, death was never part. Sin was never a part of God's original created order. He created Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden perfect. And it was perfect in, in all forms. There was no sin, no death, no pain, no suffering. It wasn't God's plan. And God will, in the future, restore us back to this perfect garden. You see, the created order was broken by sin in the Garden of Eden. But instead of leaving us there in those consequences, leaving us to die in our sin, God has been on a redemptive mission ever since. You see, Easter, the empty tomb, is a preview of the trajectory of the whole universe. God is going to restore all things. The tomb tells us that one day, the garden we lost in Eden will be restored in a new kingdom. The kingdom where there's no sickness, no pain, no suffering, no cancer, no sin, no evil. And the trajectory of God's creation will one day fully be redeemed in Jesus Christ. That's the hope that we live in. Paul the Apostle has this vision of the end times, the vision of Jesus coming back to restore all things. And in Revelation 21 verse 1, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things have passed away. You see, the empty tomb is a reminder that in every moment of our suffering, in every moment of our pain, in every moment of our sickness, where death steals our joy, every moment where sin still hurts and destroys, these are all reminders to the Christian that the grave is still empty, Jesus is risen, and God is not finished yet. You see, these things we face are not the end of the story. He's starting with redeeming and restoring us, our human heart, from sin. But then one day, this will overflow into all of creation. This is the resurrected hope that we live in. What other worldview has or offers this hope? God is making all things new. And we live as a resurrected people, a resurrected Sunday people, not denying that world's not in despair, but living in the hope and the power of the resurrection. Timothy Keller, again, asks this great question. He says, But Jesus Christ is walking proof that you will miss nothing. Nothing. It's all coming in the future. It's going to be unimaginably wonderful. 
There is no religion, no philosophy, no human being who can offer this kind of future. And as Christians, our hope for the future is based on the historical fact of the resurrection. That God is going to restore all things and that we are going to be resurrected with him. So if you're not a Christian, he says, let me ask this. Why wouldn't you want that? Even if you don't like different aspects of the Christian faith, why wouldn't you want this hope for restoration? Why wouldn't you want this restoration of your heart and of the entire of the creation where sin has been dealt with, the pain and suffering are gone, where God offers us that freely and all we need to do is receive that as a free gift because of his great unfailing love. You know, the gospel doesn't finish on the cross or even in the tomb, but in the kingdom with the renewal of all things where the garden of Eden is restored, but not only the garden of our soul and our heart, but also the whole world is restored and we live again in perfect relationship with our God, with perfect unity. You see, the resurrected Christ, the great gardener of our souls, is here today. And just as he called out Mary's name, he calls you by name. The question is, will you respond to that call? Because he's calling out your name because he wants a deep, intimate, loving relationship with you. And through the cross and the resurrection, he's done everything needed to come into relationship with him and be restored. Not only in heart, but in future where we all gather together as sons and daughters and worship him face to face. That is the hope that raises up in my heart that I look forward to one day to see my Lord as Mary saw him and yelled out, Rabboni, for me to see my Lord face to face and say, Jesus. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, not only for the cross, that you were willing to bear the sin, my sin, God, and our sin as we sit here. And we thank you, God, that the payment was accepted and the miracle of the resurrection, that you defeated sin and death forever, and that anyone who puts their faith and trust in you will be free of sin, that would live a life full of your Holy Spirit in grace and in love. God, please open our eyes to the truth of the cross, but also to the truth and the power of the resurrection. And as we're in this moment of prayer with our heads bowed, you might be sitting here and you've never accepted that free gift of salvation. Well, Jesus is here today and he's calling your name. He's saying, come home. I've done, the, I've done everything that's needed. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to have intimacy. And I want to spend eternity with you. I've done everything. Simply, you need to take his hand. So I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. But when you raise your hand, your life is going to be changed forever because Jesus loves you and he redeems and he seeks and he saves the lost out of his great love. So if you want to do that, if you've never received God's grace through putting your faith in Jesus, just raise your hand now. And I'm going to pray for you. God, we thank you so much for your grace, for your love that we see on the cross that you were willing to die for us out of your great mercy and your great love. And if you want to respond to Jesus, you can just pray this in, my heart, in your heart. You can say these words after me. Say, Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sin. I believe you went to the cross 
out of love for me. And you paid my debt. And I thank you, you rose again in victory over sin and death. And I received that as a free gift. Father, I ask for, 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 Holy, for Holy Spirit to come. I ask that you would bless me with your spirit, forgiveness, and eternal life. Come Holy Spirit. Would they even just sense now you washing them clean of their sin? Would they sense the power of the resurrection? Would they sense and know deep down in their heart the love that you have for them and the joy that is filling your heart now, God? And we all give you praise and glory because you are worthy of all praise and glory, God. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are holy and righteous and good. You are full of mercy and love beyond comprehension. And we come today to worship you because you are worthy of all praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen.